from the offices of Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode, we re- welcome back our buddies, Bruce Melman and David Castagnetti. We'll take a look at the elections coming up, Supreme Court nominee, um, and what we think is going to happen in the fall. Okay, big bosses, David Castagnetti and Bruce Melman. All right. Bruce Melman, David Cassignani, welcome back to 14th and G. Thanks for having us back. All right, so we're recording this uh, in late July. Let me set the scene for folks. The president <laughs> has just had a wild few weeks overseas, it, it, including a two-hour private sit-down with Vladimir Putin. Uh, it feels like there's more tariffs coming by the minute. Um, today, Larry Sabato said that the Dems are more likely to take the House than not. Uh, yet the president's approval rating is ticking up, and um, it's sky high amongst the GOP. What in the hell is going on? That doesn't make perfect sense to you? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it goes against every political theory I ever studied. <laughs> you know, uh, we wonder about that sometimes, too, and there's a little bit of Donald Trump's ability to defy what we assume is political gravity. I think there are two things going on. Uh, the the uh, maybe three. First, we're in this tribal world where if you're picking on my guy, then I'm rallying around my guy. And so for a lot of Republicans, uh, the level of intensity and fury among Democrats in the media leads to a reflexive, I approve my guy just because you're so spitting mad. Uh, number two, the GOP has three factions. There are the evangelical conservatives who love his Israel policy and are thrilled with the judges that are being put on the courts, including the Supremes. There's the pro-business establishment folks. They love the tax cuts and the deregulations. They're the anti-elitist, anti, or the, the populist types. They like the trade policy. They're okay. They, they're excited about the immigration policy, but they love the way he fights with the media and he all-cap tweets. Um, all those folks are getting something that they want. Throw in last, the economy's going strong, and all that stuff together leads to a, a high GOP approval. I think that the other only piece I'd pick up on the other piece is we're just living in an era of disruption. And no matter whether we're talking about the business market and changes that Lyft and others bring to the taxi market or we're dealing in politics, it's just a wild time out there and people are very unsettled. I think Bruce's point is 100% right. I'm, it depends whose team I'm on and that's who I'm with no matter what happens. So to that point, Bruce, you may make the case that both parties have something to kind of hang on to. Both parties have a little bit of a, of a dream. I think it's a little bit split by depending on which side of the House you're talking about, or which side of the Congress you're talking about. But what's give me the case for the GOP. What's the So if they're looking at November, what are they, what are they thinking about? You mean what's my story that I'm sticking to? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. first and foremost. Good luck on this one. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, the so he was wearing <laughs> a lot This one's going to work well. <laughs> uh, first, the economy's strong. That's just a fact. Uh, people are shocked at how strong it is. Now, there's a huge risk that the trade war is going to start biting into it just in time for elections. But... We're about to get this Friday a GDP uh, number that everybody agrees will be big. Trump says it'll be 500% increase. Uh, The GDP forecast is 3.8. We'll see. Um, Unemployment's really low. Construction spending's high. Consumer confidence, small business confidence, satisfaction with the direction of the U.S., all high. That's one. Two, it's a midterm. 
Uh, overall turnout among voters in presidential years is 60%, in non-presidential years is closer to 45%. And these midterm voters are typically older, they're typically less diverse, they're typically a little more conservative. Republicans have typically done better in midterms, it's a midterm. I think that's the the highlight for the Republicans, is that this is actually where they're very fortunate, is that it's older and Old white guys? Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's two. Uh, three in the House, uh, although <laughs> this data changed this morning, but uh, there are only 23 seats that uh, that are held by House Republicans that also voted for Hillary Clinton last presidential. When the Democrats lost in a wave, they were defending 34 such seats in 2010. In, 20, in 1994, they were defending 53 such seats. When you take a look at Republican waves in 2010, there were 78 Dem seats. You recall this, CR. You were defending them back when. Yeah, I did a great job on yeah, that. Yeah, huh? really good work. They were rated toss-up or worse. There's less than half that many Republican seats being defended this time. Well, in the Senate, it's an even more profound situation where the Dems are defending 26, the R's are defending 9. Of the 9 that we're defending, only one of them went for Hillary Clinton, whereas 10 of the 26 the Dems are defending went for uh, Donald Trump and heck, uh, the West Virginia went to Trump by 42 points. North Dakota, 36. These are epic defenses that the Dems have to put up. So, is that just it, David? Is it just a Senate House thing? Because it it, it could be. Uh, I'm not sure. So, I, I mean, I think a, a, a couple of points. Right, Democrats are motivated. You look at the generic ballot. Democrats are winning anywhere between eight and 12 points, depending on the poll that you happen to look at on any calendar day. Voter intensity is way up. We've seen overperformance in even solidly Republican, solidly Republican districts. We've seen overperformance even in places like Texas, where Democrats don't win, but Democratic turnout is way higher than expected, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about how that may affect the Senate race in Texas, right, uh, with O'Rourke. I think there are a couple of other structural things that we have to remind ourselves of. Just looking at the first term of a presidency, uh, even going back to Reagan, Reagan lost 26 seats, Obama lost 63 seats, Clinton lost 54 seats. History is on the Democratic side just in terms of their ability to win based on kind of what's happened in the past. The second part, and this goes with the voter intensity piece, is recruiting has been an incredible success, right? The Democrats have recruited over 1,400 people to run for various House offices. They range from the Connor Lamb, Alyssa Slotkin's types to uh, types in New York that we've seen. So it's a wide spectrum. There's clearly a huge motivation against this president. And I'll jump in real quick. I, uh, I saw today Connor Lamb released a poll, has him up pretty big. Um, and the, the thought that Connor Lamb could potentially keep a seat that was that red is I you know maybe another canary in the coal mine. It, it's yeah, it's it's pretty wild, right? And they're fitting the profile, right? I mean, this is I think one of the things uh, we learned with with uh, Congressman Emanuel when he was running the DCCC. You find the right person to run in the district, and you know the 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 Slotkins of the world certainly aren't the gun control types that um, the Democrats would see in their party. But she certainly fits the profile of the district that she's running in, which may mean at the end of the day she wins. Well, to that point. Uh, originally, I went looking on theory of how do I make the case for the Republicans? Like, I know what I'll do. I'll look at the track record of people who were running in states where the other party's president had won big time, because I was sure that was going to spell doom for Donnelly and Heitkamp and Manchin and Tester and mm -hmm. those folks. 
And what we found looking at 333 Senate elections over 10 midterms is the most important factor, bar none, not are you a veteran, not are you a man, not are you a woman, is, are you, is your party out of the White House? Because if you are the non-White House party, you win almost all of the time. Hmm. If your party's controlling the White House in the midterm, even if you're an incumbent, even if you're in a state that the president carried, uh, you have much more to worry about. Which, if you think about it, actually makes sense because these folks know they're in trouble, right? So they're doing the works that's necessary to run a successful campaign against the president. It's also interesting when you look at these folks that— We've talked about they've also have places where they agree with the president. When you look at the tariff question and sure. uh, that type of issue. There's some folks who voted for Supreme Some of them Court. will vote for Supreme Court justice yeah. as well. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see what happens in the next round. It's a little surprising, though, CR, because when you look at the Pew data on the frequency of split tickets, increase the fewer and fewer. In 2016, zero states, lowest ever, of course, zero states split between a Senate candidate of one party and a president of another. All 33 Senate races aligned in each state with whatever party's candidate won in that state. Um, that So that would make you think perhaps that these Dems are in trouble. And look, they could well be in trouble. It's If Manchin can pull off a win with a 42% presidential deficit, wow. Yeah, yeah uh, I think a guy named Blankenship may help him out a little bit on that one. <laughs> That's a wild state. <laughs> um, uh, so make the case... So uh, you made reference to this, but I, I had a closer up view in 2010 when the wave was moving away from us. It does, I will say, taste and feel and smell like this to uh, a wave year to me. What's the case that the wave is coming or not coming? Uh, Bruce, why don't you make the case for the waves coming? Well, a uh, couple of different things I'd point to. First, uh, most elections this century have been change elections. If you think about every election this century, 2002, the Senate flipped. 2006, the House and the Senate flipped. 2008, the uh, White House flipped. 2010, the House flipped. 2014, the Senate flipped. 2016, the White House flipped. Voters want change. They're not getting it, so they keep punishing whoever is currently in control. That's number one. Number two, we did a chart. It's a little busy, but looking at what historically have been wave indicators. So one is the resistance intensity, how pissed off is the out party? And one way to see is how little do they approve of the president? This ties 06 for a record year. Uh, the generic ballot, when you ask which party do you prefer control Congress, it's very wavy, consistent with wave years. Do you approve of the job Congress is doing? We're rocking 17% right now, but that's wave territory. The uh, higher number of people satisfied with the direction of the country, mostly driven by the economy, is less wavy. And the enthusiasm gap numbers have kind of gone back and forth, but they're not where 2006 were by any stretch. Republicans are pretty fired up. Some of that may be the Supreme Court. Some of that may be they got their tax cut. Some of that may be this new tribal era where just everybody's fired up and angry all the time. It's interesting to me because uh, uh, while I – um, I don't have the data in front of me. My memory is that in around in 2010, around this time of the summer, everything felt like it mellowed out a bit. And about September, early October, that's when races really started really moving. So you moved all these races out of the margin of error. Um, I, I It feels like a wave to me. It feels like, uh, um, at least in the House, let me say this, it feels like a wave to me in the House. And it feels to me like... Um, you're going to look, we're all going to look at polling numbers in September and you're going to start to see a big movement. 
Um, it also felt like President Hillary Clinton to you. <laughs> well, true. And President Kerry and President Gore <laughs> and President whoever else. Uh, David, the question I have for you is, is you know, does money matter anymore? Like, uh, it feels like, so every time I look and, you know, Democrats are raising a zillion dollars and the House Democrats raise more than Republican Democrats and outside groups raise more than, who cares? Is there enough? Yeah. It, I, I mean, I, two things. One, if I just may just quickly make one point sure. on the wave side for a second. Sure. The, the one thing, folks like Sabato and Cook, who are the premier watchers of these races, are already indicating there's more races in play than they had anticipated. So, And we're slightly ahead of that August-September yeah. time frame. So they're seeing something that others aren't seeing. So kudos to them, and I think they may get it. I think, CR, in terms of your, your money question, is, is very legitimate. The, the game is changing, right? Independent expenditure groups are becoming much bigger deals and, and on both sides of the aisles, right? When you look at Bloomberg announcing he's going to spend $80 million in House races to elect Democratic candidates, or you look at the Koch brothers in terms of what they're investing, over $400 million on the Republican side, that game has changed. The party structures are very different. It's not as dependent for the candidates to go to the party structures in order to get their money. The one place that does remain fairly consistent, though, is what the individual candidates raise, that piece is still important. And the way they're raising money, though, is very different. It's not just from big donors anymore. Facebook and, and email and other venues have allowed people to actually donate small dollars and lead to very big money that some of these candidates have on hand in terms of small dollar donations. Yeah, there's always a good argument that the people who have their own money, they can spend it's a little cheaper, the rest has stuff. I mean, I always view that a little bit as an intensity thing. So you look at O'Rourke's in Texas. I'm not sure he's going to win or not, but he's raising a ton of money, a $10 million yeah. quarter or something like that. Although yeah. in that regard, uh, the RNC announced the fastest to $200 million ever with 99% small donors. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. It used to be Bernie and it used to be the left of center, and it's now – uh, Trump has turned the Republican Party more than it's ever been into the angry, small donor, it's, it's uh, torch and pitchfork it, army. You're totally right. It's interesting to me. When I worked at the DNC back in the day, though, um, we uh, uh, looked very much at the RNC's small donor male situation. So they were... It's kind of weird how these yeah. things can kind of move around, Cycles. right? They were the they were small donor, you know, five dollar checks in an actual yeah. piece of mail. We and were all the, the mail, then stuff. you guys became the internet guys, and now it feels like it's Bitcoin, kind of moving around. Know. What yeah. Yeah. exactly? Exactly. Yeah. Mailing in chickens. My 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 point on this one, and and I guess it's it's it's. Um, not as clear, but I just think all these are national elections. It may be easier to make a Senate race not nationalized, but like we're uh, there's going to be a bunch of members of Congress that are going to either win or lose, really based a lot less on what they're actually doing. Yeah, I, I think I mean to pick up on that. I mean, again, we talked a little bit about this, but voter intensity matters, right? My guys come out to vote. That's the key, and trying to figure out ways to get your guys to stay home. That's the other piece of the puzzle. Um, the, the only thing, CR, where I, I say I, I might slightly di disagree a little bit is the, at, at the Democrats, especially in the House and to a certain degree in the Senate, we have candidates that fit the profile of the states, right? So again, to go back to the Connor Lambs or the Aliska Slotkins, they fit Pennsylvania and Michigan and look like what's happening out there. And the same thing can be said for the testers and the hike camps in Montana and North sure. Dakota, they've stayed very much in touch with the local part of the politics. And if you look at some of the original advertising that 
uh, the the Senate Majority Pack did early on, it was all very local stuff. It wasn't national advertising that they did. But on the other side, it does help increase the base and the intensity of this president and what this president has said and done. Of course, you know, in CR, you live this, that you're right, and it's totally smart. You've got to run people who fit the district. The problem then is then they come in. And right now, they can be whatever it takes to win. As soon as they're in, it's like, you know, country, and we got two kinds of music, country and Western. You can either be progressive or liberal in the current Democratic Party. You pick. But we saw in the bloodbath in 2010 and arguably in 2014, once the Dems have to walk the Nancy Pelosi plank on policy, uh, boy, did they become vulnerable in these purple districts where they ran as very moderate candidates. Yeah, so, and, and I think part of that, though, to me, is what I would say is, the Democrats have to kind of figure out where they fit. Are they a party of Bill Clinton and kind of center left, or are they party of the kind of further left of the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren? And that's kind of a little bit, I think, what we're seeing fight out in some of these House races. Interestingly enough, we haven't seen that in the Senate races. We've seen that much more in the House races. So that actually is a good segue for my last political question, and I want to ask you guys some policy questions. My last political question is, you know, what the hell happened to Joe Crowley? Um, you know, it's it would seem like in a normal election year, if the number four person in the House um, lost, that that's a three or three week story. That was a story for 10 minutes. Then the president sat down with Putin and did all this other stuff and tweeted about a bunch of other things. And so we don't pay attention to it. But what do you think happened there? Well, I think a little bit if if you just go back to history and you see what happened, to Eric Cantor and the Republican mm-hmm. side in Virginia a few years back. Similar. I um uh, you kind of lose a little sight of what's going on back home. Uh, the district is changing. You need to kind of stay on top of the change. Um, that challenge exists. He um, certainly was a great uh, leader within the party itself, mm-hmm. but clearly there was disconnect. It also goes back just kind of what I touched on at the beginning in terms of the age of disruption, right? It's just if you're an incumbent, you're in a difficult situation, no matter who you are in this case, and you have to be prepared to see what happens. I mean, I think to me, it's real interesting, as in case people can't tell, I'm from Boston, and watching Massachusetts politics play out, you have three long-term incumbents being challenged similar to the way Crowley is challenged, and will they have time to adjust to what uh, Mr. Crowley had happen in uh, in New York. It, it, you know, we'll see how that plays out in September. I'll, I, I can make it even simpler. Voters hate Washington. Crowley had become a national figure because he's as plenty liberal as they come. Sure. But he was a national figure, and they want to throw whoever's running Washington out, so he was the guy. Tanner is a perfect analogy. It's interesting. Um, you know, I think uh, probably all three of us in this room have probably had a decent interaction with Mr. Crowley's nice guy, perfectly nice guy. But it is amazing that he lost to a person who had basically no name ID, no nothing. And in addition to him losing, she also won the primary in another yeah, district yeah. <laughs> as her write-in. So, I mean, we're living in crazy times. Okay, so let's talk some policy. Um in the fall, we have a Supreme Court nomination fight and probably government funding. Whether it's shut down or not is unclear. How do you see that shaking out? Look, Supreme Court, uh, thanks to Harry Reid, uh, although he would say he drew the line short of the Supreme Court, which he did, but he also broke the dam on the filibuster. You only need 50 votes plus the vice president. Republicans have 50 votes plus the vice president. Um, in picking Kavanaugh, you picked a former Bush administration, pretty credible establishment choice. 
Uh, I might argue he's the Merrick Garland choice of the Republican side. Does that mean um, we don't have to vote on him? Or is well, that yeah. It, it, means, uh, it, yeah, it means if you guys were in charge, we probably wouldn't see a vote on I him. I didn't know Merrick Garland's father was a lobbyist, yeah. actually. That's, a, that's where I thought you were going. Uh, in a uh, when you have aside conversations with your Democratic friends, they will concede. He's smart. He's qualified. I've got tons of Dems who have either lawyers who have appeared before him or folks who've worked sure. with them. He's a great guy. Um, and I think, I think he went to an unfortunate high school. Though, didn't hey, he? wait a minute. Like hey. That. Yeah. Well, you know, the high school has all kind of graduates. There's CR, <laughs> and then there's the uh, chairman of the Fed and uh, two Supreme Court two, justices. Two Supreme Court justices. So We're all basically right. on the same page. Um, um, they don't have a podcast. Though. <laughs> I, I presume it, if he does, <laughs> if he doesn't stumble bad, he's going to be confirmed, and it's only a question of. Um, did the Dems go house to house, street to street, in which case McConnell's like, great, you guys uh, in, this, in the red state Democrats, you never get to go home to vote. Um, but I think he gets confirmed. Uh, and your other question on policy well, was shut down. Kavanaugh, yeah, yeah. One second, I think one thing on Kavanaugh, I think the other side, though, it does increase the Democratic intensity. And then when you, when you start to look at places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, the, 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 the folks will come out to vote, and, and this will be another driving reason that they do come out to vote. You know, it's true, but you were just correctly pointing out folks what, who— graduated were, from Georgetown Prime? No, the folks—you're <laughs> running, you're running a lot of pretty moderate to conservative Democrat folks, and particularly in all those Trump states. So is there a problem with him that he's, what, pro-gun or pro-life or, or pro-states' rights? Or, you know, it's going to be a pretty tough choice for a lot of folks who want to say, I'm with you, red state— and then have to come up with a principled reason to vote against a guy who otherwise red states love. And I would say on the flip side of that, I mean, you just saw with the uh, last Supreme Court nominee, you got some Democratic votes. It wouldn't surprise me you got a couple Democratic votes. I bet you will, too. which you may uh, need because uh, Rand Paul right now is, <laughs> I don't know what it is, he's, he's doing something that may cause his neighbor to tackle him again. Um, the only thing I'd say is the anti-choice question has a very mixed signal, and I think that is one that truly does motivate Democrats and truly motivates Democratic women. Um, specifically. So, I, I, you know, there, there's a double-edged sword to that, too. Agreed. The government has 14 legislative days. After today, it's 13 legislative days in the House left. They didn't do it today. So we can go ahead and say <laughs> it first 13. Uh, to pass a spending bill, and the government shuts down on the 30th of September. September. Uh, everything we think we know about politics says that they collectively agreed to a three-month punt and a, a CR, a continuing resolution to avoid the shutdown, because no, you know, why would the Dems want to rock the boat into an election where they're things they think they're going really well? And I think most Republicans, based upon every prior shutdown where it crushed Republican uh, support for the GOP, would say we don't need to shut it down either. There's a new element here, and it's a bit of a wild card. And will Donald Trump decide it's in his political interest, and and he thinks it'll rally his supporters to say. You don't give me $25 billion for a wall, I don't sign the spending bill. That's a very real possibility. Hell, Stan Colander gives it a 60% chance of a shutdown. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like we're in short-term CR world, but it, I also didn't never imagine a president who would invite Vladimir Putin in the fall of an election year to the White House. Oh, come so. on, CR. The 80s are calling and they want their foreign policy back. We can imagine that, President. He's the one who tried to humiliate Mitt Romney when Mitt Romney said Russia was our number one enemy, which was right. Maybe. I, I, I still wonder if he's going to have a formal state dinner for him. Yeah. Would, would it, seems, it seems pretty clear that Mr. Uh, Speaker Ryan and uh, Leader McConnell are not interested in having him on the Capitol Hill. Um, 
Okay, so uh, what do you see coming down the road legislatively, uh, either in the kind of between now and election day, or also in the lame duck? Because I'm sure some of this stuff will kind of run between. Uh, uh, what are the what are the big trains leaving well, the station here? The couple of the really big trains really are uh, the defense bill. Um, which will contain some CFIUS and uh, some CFIUS, uh provisions that many folks uh, care about. Um, there's been a little discussion on the ZTE question too about whether that will be allowed to continue. Seems like the president's going to kind of get his way on that. Those th- those seem to be th- that seems to be something very real. There's an ag bill uh, that's also hovering out there. Uh, it seems like it'll end up looking more like the Senate bill with some SNAP provisions and some crop insurance, that kind of thing that is the usual trade-off. So those feel like they're coming down the pipeline. I think the other side is what we were just talking about. You obviously, you have to fund government. Uh, again, there's always been a ton of discussion about opioids and drug pricing. Will there be something that kind of plays out in, in that environment? Those feel like, to me, those are the big things between now and the end of this calendar year that potentially could get done. I also think it always it always depends on what, especially like uh, after the election, what's the landscape look like? Mm-hmm. Um, do people who are no longer going to be here because they retired or lost want to vote for some stuff or not want to vote for some stuff? Do people want to clear decks? Do they not? Um, it'll be interesting to see what the president does do on his, um, he said he won't, you know, sign an omnibus bill again and yet the white house today put out something saying that they were thinking about putting um some subsidies in for farmers who are being affected by the tariffs i don't think those are free so i'm not exactly sure does that go on a farm bill does that go on a budget feels like a lot of that's well the good thing is the republicans in charge deficits don't matter anymore so they can spend as much money as they would like because do you want to def- do you want to defend that, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> Look at the time. <laughs> All right, so so um, I'll wrap up with this question, and uh, I'll put you on the spot. So we got a lot of races: governors' races, Senate races, House races. I'm going to put you on the record here. Tell me someone who's going to win. It can be your party or or not. Tell you someone who's going to win. Yeah. Uh, Give Rick me a prediction. Scott's going to win in Florida which goes against the last 10 midterms that we've seen. He's mm-hmm. as good a candidate as you're going to put up. He's the sitting governor. He's well-liked and well-respected, um, and he's got a good operation down there. And even though Democrats in that same – or people in that – senator, incumbent senators in that same position have been batting 100 uh, percent, he's going to lose. Okay. Uh, if I was to have to put down a dollar of Bruce's money right now, it would be on Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. I think she of every candidate uh, – I've, we, I've been able to observe during the course of the year. She is the m- person who's convinced me the most that she's going to win. She has a game plan in place. She knows what has to be done and could be the right candidate at the right time. So I'm going uh, to throw my hat in here, too. I will say that all Democrats will win. I love them all equally, you know, all that stuff. But uh, the person that I will say will not lose, which I guess is, is the same as uh, winning, uh, is Joe Donnelly. Joe Donnelly is... Uh, about as Indiana as you can be. Uh, you, What's the Trump nickname? Sleepy Joe? Yeah. <laughs> well, Sleepy Joe voted for one Supreme Court nominee, and I suspect he might vote for another one. And I think the fine people of Indiana will reward him by, by, by bringing him back in a state that the president won by a gazillion points and that the vice president's from. Our colleague, who's a former Indiana Senate chief of staff, will tell you Mike Braun's a great candidate. All right. Uh, thanks for stopping in, guys. Thank you. Thank thanks you. for having us here. 
I always have a fun time talking with Bruce and David. Um, it doesn't hurt that they also write my paychecks. <laughs> anyway, if you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. And until next time, at the intersection of business and policy, right here, 14th of June.